0: last uh, episodes of the podcast, we've had a number of conversations bordering on careers. Uh, and today we're going to have one of those conversations. Uh, the difference with this one is it's got two aspects to it. Um, there is the fun side, and then there's the more serious side. And all of these are embedded in one person. And that is our guest for today. Most of you do know him uh, from... The tax side, obviously. Uh, some of you who know him from from way back, you interact with him from his movie, TV days. He'll give us details uh, around that story. But, ladies and gentlemen, I'm presenting to you, Mr. Topsy Sikalinda. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, excited to be here. It's good to see you. Thank you so much. So, Topsy, uh, tell us tell us about your 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 background first of all. Um, like, want to get to know you a bit so that as we have the conversation, we feel like we know you. Growing up, where you grow up. Talk us through that.
1: Well, okay. That's one of the most difficult questions I always... When you ask me, tell me about yourself. I think it's always difficult to say. Uh, Generally, I'm just this simple... I still consider myself a young man. Um, Grew up from a very humble background. Uh, Both my parents were primary school teachers. And uh, my mom is still alive. My dad is late. And... um, we were brought up in a big family of 11, and um, we grew up like that. And this is why I'm a serious advocate of numbers. I think uh, I don't believe in having less numbers in a family. We need to have more children, and numbers will always grow the economy.
0: Numbers will do miracles. Yeah, numbers. I mean, talk about China, for example, and Nigeria, you know, big economies. Uh, So now let's let's, let's jump right into your, your career. Um, how did you How did you start? How did you start? Well, just like
1: any other young man, <clears throat> the beginning was not very straight, in the sense that when we completed our grade twelve, uh, then um, I knew I wanted to be in the creative side of things, but I wasn't too sure exactly where I wanted to go. And uh, in trying to be in the creative side, I think the first attempt was that I wanted to do animation and at that time animation was not really popular in this country. I went ahead, did animation and after doing animation, came back home and uh, unfortunately there was just no market for animation at that time. If you remember, I think we had not yet even gone digital in terms of television, we're still on analog and away from analog uh, we were only doing 2D animation then. And uh, that aside, it ended up forcing me to just do still animation, which was known as computer graphics then. So I started from there, and uh, later on, uh, in fact, before that, I forgot one other aspect. Immediately, I completed school. I went to study procurement. But I went to study procurement not because I wanted to do it, but because I think I just needed to be in school. So I did Procurement Level 1 only, then it was called SIPS Level 1. And after completing it, unfortunately, I didn't even use it or even... I've never used it up to (laughs) date. Then I thought I pursued something that I had a passion for, which was animation. Animation ended up landing me in uh, advertising, I mean, in graphics. Graphics took me into advertising. And in the process then, I think we used to look up to certain people and um, my stint working in the advertising uh, industry then I grew a passion for PR and among the people who actually inspired me so much to go into PR then um, I remember very well uh, Noel Nkoma uh, was uh, then with uh, Finance Bank at that time and I recall very well I think he was doing quite great things uh, in that role as corporate affairs uh, director or manager, country core. And I think that was the beginning of the inspiration. Later on, there was a movie called Thank You for Not Smoking. Uh, If you've seen that movie, if you haven't seen it, I think uh, whoever played that movie and played the lead role in that movie was a great motivation for me to go into PR. That aside, there was a third influence then. I think it was uh, Emmanuel Mwamba. Uh, when he was um, a spokesperson for the late president, uh, Chiluba. And I think from there, I made a decision to say, I think I need to do PR. One day, I just woke up and I said, I think I'm tired of this graphic thing, And that's how I quit my job. Went to study PR. And today, I'm here. And the comedy? Well, the comedy also... Started... How did the comedy start? Like, how did you know you were funny? I never knew I was funny. <laughs> uh, what's funny is that... Uh, <laughs> When I was in secondary school at uh, Kamala High School then, um, I was co-opted by my friends to join the drama club because it was kind of mandatory for every student to belong to a club. So then, initially, the library was considered to be some kind of a club. I wanted to go to the library to become a librarian at school then. And uh, they had to conduct interviews and everything. And when I went for that interview, I remember very well I had no stockings. I was disqualified on the fact that I had no stockings, therefore I could not become a librarian. Then I think the next point was uh, which other club can I join? I ended up, my friends took me to drama. And uh, when I joined drama, then uh, the late Jomam Sinjemwale was the patron and uh, he was our teacher taking us in uh, literature, uh, English and... um, uh, art as well. Uh, I think I grew the passion for acting, and from there on, from acting, it was basically just acting, acting, then um, later on, we left school, continued a little bit on the acting side, and from the acting side, which I was doing as a hobby. One of my friends uh, from Youth Alive then, John and Mary, two of them, were getting married. And um, when John approached me and said, I need your help, I'm marrying my friend. I thought it's the traditional thing, the same thing where he wants you to be in the committee, he wants you to run a few errands for him and everything. So that's how I agreed. We had some meetings and everything. I think as the meetings were going on, I could not really see my role where he wanted me until I think after having about three meetings or so, then the issue of the MC was touched. Then he says uh, the MC is actually here. That's why he's been coming. (laughs) I think it was a shock for me. And um, really, I say, Deni, it's not not a big deal. Let me do it. That was my first gig in my life to MC. I MC'd his wedding. I think just after MCing his wedding. Two weeks later, I had a booking for a wedding and that's where the journey begins. I think from then it was booking after booking, booking after booking. The next thing I wanted to attempt stage stand-up and um, I must be very honest, I think of late it's been a little bit easy for the young comedians to get stage time in terms of uh, stage but those days it wasn't easy to get uh, a slot. I really tried my best to get a slot. I couldn't get it or being given um, a mic I wasn't given. I kept working hard towards that, uh, and I knew one day I would have the mic, until one Chiwekatebe decided to give me an opportunity one day. And after being given an opportunity, I did a few uh, smaller shows with him. Then the next show I was doing, I was doing a show with uh, Annie Kansime, Uh, From Uganda, I was doing a show with uh, Pablo right here in Zambia. I think that must have been 2012 or 2013, somewhere there. After doing um, those shows with them, I think um, coincidentally the power of social media had a huge influence, I think, on my comedy career. Um, The clip I performed at where I was playing the role of a cop then... Uh, I actually started the role of the cop, and uh, the number of my friends and other comedians who are now doing the cop. Um, after that, I think barely few months after that, the clip was uplo- uploaded on YouTube. I got a call in the comedy circles. Okay, in the boxing circles, if you remember, we used to have uh, the man with the white hair. What was his name? In boxing, uh, the promoter.
0: Yeah. The promoter, uh, yeah. the
1: late. I don't know whether he's late or what was his Anthony name? Anthony Wamba. No, no, no. The American one. The one who used to promote oh, Mark Cotton. Tyson.
0: Oh. oh, no. Oh, What uh, was no. his name? Mark Tyson. No, H, no, I can't go that far back.
1: Well, his name is gone. In the comedy circles, we have, on the African continent, I think the biggest stand-up comedy promoter is a guy called Opa Williams from Nigeria. I got a call from Opa Williams, actually it started with a message in my inbox on Facebook. And he introduced himself as Opa Williams and he needed to get in touch and discuss with a few things with me. I ignored the message because I thought it was spam.
0: <laughs>
1: you get it, right? Eh? I yeah. thought it was spam. So I ignored the message and it passed. I think I saw another message after about three days. Again, I ignored the message. Then the next thing, I think uh, one of the big comedians, I can't recall whether it was Bob or somebody called me, saying, there's this guy trying to get hold of you. Then it was a big thing at this moment. Then the next thing, I got a call from, again, I remember Chiwaka telling me, somebody's calling you just now. And he sounded so excited about it. So immediately cut the phone, within I think a minute or two, I got a call. And again, hi Thompson. This is Opa Williams. I've been trying to get hold of you. And we had a fruitful discussion. 2014, I got signed up to him, uh, the biggest promoter on the African continent. And he has this security called Night of a Thousand Laughs. And what he does is that he picks what he feels are the ten best stand-up comedians on the continent and signs them up and he does a tour of the African continent in a number of countries with them. So I got signed up to him and I did uh, my first international, which was Night of a Thousand Laughs and uh, shared the stage then with the big names. I think at that time, it was the time I think we discussed something earlier where you feel you uh, you don't deserve because I was in the presence of people like... Um, uh, basket Mouth, I was in the presence of people like uh, Daliso Chaponda, I was in the presence of people like uh, quite a number of big comedians, Salvador and others on the African continent. And I was among what they had assumed to be cream de la creme of stand-up comedy on the African continent. I was very young then and uh, really it was humbling and amazing. And from there on I think we've never looked back, the journey has continued. Um, and it's been a great journey, I must say. Uh, very soon, I will be, I think, in the month of December, I will be reuniting with uh, Daliso Chaponda. Uh, I think you remember Daliso Chaponda from... Yeah, yeah, the, from the Britain's
0: Got Talent guy. Britain's yeah, Good Talent, modern,
1: yeah. I first performed with that guy, I think, 2013 or 2014. We did a number of shows together before he was uh, famous. But I will be reuniting with him this year. Uh, we have a special coming in December. Here in Zambia? Yes, in Zambia. Actually, I'm announcing this for the first (laughs) time on your platform. So I will be reuniting with him uh, at the comedy club this year. And uh, let's see where it takes us. Um, Then from there, I think then I was working for Lusaka Water. And I think uh, my job then was very flexible. When I joined uh, the Zambia Revenue Authority, initially after I left uh, Lusaka Water, I wanted to pursue comedy full time. But I think there was some other national duty that called upon that I needed to save the country in a different capacity to help uh, the country with uh, taxation. And I took up the challenge and I think I delivered uh, to the best of my abilities until at the point uh, that I switched roles. Now I'm in the innovation sector, which is again a creative sector. Uh, my view of communication and PR is basically innovations and uh, creatives. And I'm a creative mind by nature. So I think for me, stand-up helps me so much in my career because I look at things from a very different perspective. And it helps me. You know, when when you're a comedian and you're delivering or writing a joke, mostly you write a joke from the perspective where you want the punchline, you want that feedback. Yeah. Therefore, even in communication, it's the same concept we use. Whenever you are issuing a statement or doing something, what is the desired feedback? How do you want people to behave? Because this is a social science. You want to influence the public to think or behave in a particular way or to respond in a particular way. So it is this creativity, in my opinion, that helps me in terms of my leadership in the corporate world. Apart from my leadership style in the corporate world, um, it, I think the creativeness and the innovation really has helped me uh, do and achieve quite a lot. Now, I must be very uh, quick to also mention that these are two different roles. The stand-up the stage and uh, the work environment are two different roles and uh, these are not even the personalities are two different personalities yeah so it's um it's just sad that at times we tend to mix up uh things and not look at certain things from a serious perspective for instance we could have a ceo who plays golf nobody has a problem with that but i think for me to be honest it's an inferiority complex when Somebody's a musician, is an artist, a painter, a stand-up comedian. And you're in the corporate world and you want to look down on the other person. I must tell you that stand-up comedians are among the most intelligent people in this world. That I can tell you with my eyes straight. So it's sad that sometimes people want to mix up the two. And people want to confuse you to be a joker all the time. No, no. no. These are two different roles, two different characters. Stand-up comedy, it's on stage. I'm telling my story. Okay? In probably a funny way. What you'd consider funny. But for me, it's not really in a funny way. It's just that I mainly talk about things I see from a different perspective. Usually, people will tell you a coin has got two sides. I'll argue to say a coin has got three sides. It's got the head, the tail, and the top. And the bottom, four sides. <laughs> four sides, the bottom I can't see it because it will be covered. If it's sitting on the table, I will not see the bottom. But when I look at a coin, I'll be seeing the three sides. So when I tell you that the third side is this, this is the side I see, people will realize and find it funny. I, I think most people have heard me talk about this. I love talking about Nigerian pastors because part of my comment is mainly observational. If I talk about Nigerian pastors, how they stand in church and uh, do their miracles when they say Holy Ghost fire, everyone responds fire. Then when they say Holy Ghost fire, okay, you'd find everyone goes down except the cameraman. And you remain wondering if the cameraman is fireproof. So it is at that point when you bring it out to them, Then they start thinking to say, "Ah, for real, every time the pastor throws out the energy, the fire, everyone really goes down. Why doesn't the cameraman go down? So it's not really a joke, but it's something I've observed. But people find it funny. So I tell my stories in a way that I make you realize that there's this that happens, but because we are so... um, sequential in our approach to thinking and looking at things it tends to think that that's a pattern that's a normal pattern until somebody makes you realize to say in this pattern there's something or there's a blind spot here
0: all right so your 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 comedy your comedy kicks off so when the comedy kicks off and you know you get that call from 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 the nigerian gentleman and this side also your career was your career already in motion which one started first Like, where did it first break? Like, where did it first begin to progress? What I've done, I think I've,
1: um, what I do mostly, what I've observed with myself is that uh, both of them have been moving at different paces in the sense that usually when I Pick on one, the other one goes in some kind of a pause. I'll tell you this for the last, uh, I think, five years or so uh, that I've been concentrating on my workload at uh, the Zambia Revenue Authority in my past role as a spokesperson for the authority. Uh, it was quite busy. Unfortunately, I had kind of put uh, stand up comedy on hold. And uh, basically, I'm thinking. Um, I've done my part in the corporate world and I'm thinking whatever way, whichever way it happens, when I'm done with the corporate world, I'll be back on stage to do my stand-up because I think that's where my final resting place will be.
0: Okay. Did you ever feel like the comedy was going so well let me quit my job?
1: Up to now I feel like that <laughs> because I'll be very honest, um, it pays well than the corporate world. It pays well. Um, Locally, it doesn't. That's a fact. That's just the truth. Locally, it doesn't. My first gig, 20, I think 2013 or 2012, somewhere then, my first international gig with Oprah Williams, I remember very well, I was paid, I think, slightly above 100,000 kwacha for an eight minute appearance on stage. That was then. Today, an average cost, uh, most comedians to travel from one country to another, it's about $10,000. That's for maybe a 10 minutes appearance. So imagine if you're having four or five shows in uh, a month, it really pays well. And uh, apart from that, it's also, you work at your own pace, you move at your own pace, and it's really an exciting area that at times I, to be very honest, I really get tempted to quit my job, to go back to the stage.
0: All right. Yeah. Let, let's not go into your, 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 your career, um, but before we leave the comedy out completely, have you ever had a feeling where, or an experience where some people treat you a bit differently because they think you're just a comedian? Like even at the highest level of your role, like for example, when you're a you know, spokesperson, like you said, ZRA, at a high level position, even now, this job that you hold is still, you know, big. Do have you ever had that? Does that still happen, if at all it did happen, where there's five, ten people, you're also one of them. Maybe they treat the others differently because these are more serious. That one is a comedian.
1: Um, I think I've had that. I've had that, but not, not, mainly in the corporate world, I haven't really had it. But outside the corporate world maybe you go and meet stakeholders somewhere in a particular community and uh, it works both positively and negatively depending on the situation Uh, in most cases it has worked out uh, positively in a few instances it has worked out negatively but it's how you handle the situation i remember one time um, traveled for a very important meeting into Livingstone. And I get there, and uh, basically we were meeting at one of the hotels in the lobby. That's where I was supposed to meet uh, these people. And um, in the lobby, I get there, I meet these people, and we're about to be ushered to the boardroom, and this guy just says, ah, autopsy <laughs> I'm like, what? So at times, you get such a, for me, basically, again, it takes us back. It's the inferiority complex. And basically, we we'll respect your opinion. We we'll look at you and uh, basically just smile at you and move on.
0: Have you ever gotten an offer uh, in the corporate world where they say, like, Topsy will give you this job, but the comedy has to go?
1: Um, I haven't had really... A, I've never had a problem with uh, my comedy because um, when it comes to work, it's work. We deliver. I think. Uh, the biggest challenge I've also seen is that we tend to confuse stand-up comedians with jokers. I'm not a joker, I'm a stand-up comedian. A joker will not be serious, they'll crack joke on the streets, they'll do anything. But you'll never find a professional golfer playing golf on the streets. You understand what I mean? Yeah. When you're on the pitch, you're on the pitch. Off the pitch, it's off the pitch.
0: When I'm on stage, I'm on stage. Off the stage, I'm not a comedian. All right. Talk to me about the transition from Lusaka Water. You are to the Air, right? Yes. And that was, like a huge, that was a huge move for you. Um, how did you get the job? Like, talk to me about the experience. When you received the news, like, did you also ignore it, like the way you ignored Oprah Williams? <laughs> <laughs> uh, not really. How can I say it? You know, it's
1: one of those things where I remember. I had applied for the job at the authority then, I think way, way back when it was advertised. Then I think there was over a 6 months lapse without being called for an interview or anything, and it passed. And uh, after it passed, um, on this day I just got a call to say, you're being invited for an interview for this job. And to the best of my knowledge, there was somebody already there. I remember that day I was with my friend Sam Sakala, So immediately after I hung up, I started sharing with uh, Sam Sakala, who is a former anchor for Let the People Talk Radio Phoenix and uh, now working as a PR manager for Zambia Institute of Human Resource. So I started sharing notes with him. As I was sharing notes with him, immediately his phone rang to invite him for the same interview. So we laughed over it and we really debated whether to go for that or not. After a debate, we agreed and settled that we both go. Following day, we agreed that we'd go at eight. Uh, Unfortunately, we were all busy in our own worlds. Around ten, we caught up on the phone and I was like, my friend, I think I'll not make it. He was like, ah, even me, I'm lazy. I think I'll not make it. Because really, I think we were not interested. Uh, as we were chatting, we encouraged each other to say, you know what, I'm doing nothing, and you're doing nothing, let's go. That's how Sam came to pick me up, and we actually went for that interview. So we did, uh, we got there around 10 when the interview had been called for 8. We found that there was actually a queue, and people were waiting. Then immediately we got there, I think about 10, 20 minutes later, we were ushered in the boardroom, and we were given a written Uh, assessment. We did the written assessment, then we were supposed to go back for uh, an oral interview the following day. The following day was the same again. Um, We were scheduled at different times. I remember I was scheduled for I think 10 hours, some were scheduled for 11. Unfortunately, again, we were lazy and I remember very well. You know, it wasn't just like in us. We again convinced ourselves to go there. We went there late again. We got there, I think, 11 sharp when mine was supposed to start and found that they were still interviewing the other candidates. We got there, we waited from 10, I think, up to around 13 or so. That's when I got a chance. Immediately after me, I think it was him. And we did our part and left. We were not even bothered. Coincidentally, the same day, in the evenings, I got a call and I was told to Uh, towards 17 actually not evenings towards 17 late afternoon I got a call that uh, I needed to pass through ZRA so I thought uh, maybe it's another round of interviews they want pass through there and when I got there I found a contract same day it was just like that I knew no one I was not related to anyone and funny thing about me all the jobs I've had in my life. I've always seen the advert in the newspaper, applied for it, and um, gotten that job. What pains me is this. I think this is to my colleagues and the young lads out there. I have seen people pushing for a job that they've not applied for. I think that is wrong. Even before you think of pushing if you want to push, the first step of you getting any job is to apply. It's so sad that we have a generation that I would call lazy. Okay, In the sense, uh, maybe, let me not offend people. I'm not saying this because I have a job. But for me, I think I need to be blunt about this. If you want a job, apply first. Before you even think of asking any questions about it we have a situation where we have so many people searching for jobs. Then you ask them, when last did you apply? They've never applied. In the last two years, they've never written an application letter. All they know is, now I'm pushing this side, I'm pushing this side. You don't push, you first apply. It's that simple. And there's also this habit of giving people application letters because this person works for this institution sorry to say, it doesn't work. The people you give these application letters, just throw them in their drawers or throw them in the bin. The right place to drop any application letter in any institution is the HR department. Not because you know somebody who's in finance, you go and drop it in finance, no. That is wrong. I'll be very blunt with you. I've seen this in the corporate world, I've seen it with my own eyes. To the youth out there, whenever there's a vacancy somewhere, apply to the H.R. Do not give somebody who's not in HR that application. Even if that person is your uncle, the right place to drop any application is in the H.R. department. That's where all applications go. But we have this couch. I don't know where it has come from. That's why I consider it as being lazy. Instead, you know where you're supposed to apply but you end up taking the application to the wrong person. No, because I know that one is a relative to Chakuti. I think this is across the board. Most of these institutions, yes, we may have some institutions that have a bit of issues here and there in terms of employment, but I'll assure you, when it's your time, it's your time. But even if it's your time, you have not pushed in the application later, you'll not get that job.
0: What do you make of those that don't even apply in the first place for jobs because they're assuming uh, they already have someone. They They already have people. It's just a formality. And they hold back and they sit. It's a myth. It's a myth. I've been to
1: other organizations where you've been invited to sit on the panel. You find that only four or five candidates applied for the job. How many jobs do you see in the paper that are saying re-advertised? they've been re-advertised because people didn't apply or the right people didn't apply. So there's this huge misconception that unless you know someone somewhere, that's when you can get a job. I'm not only speaking in terms of uh, where I've worked before, but I've just seen this culture. It is very possible that you can get a job even if you don't know anyone anywhere. When God says it's your time, it is your time, as long as you have done your part.
0: Okay, um, my next question is on, 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 on relationships in the workplace. A lot of people struggle to get along with their peers. It's human nature, obviously, for one to want to be in a relationship where we get along. You know, we get along, you've got cordial relationships. But for most people, their work environments are toxic because they're constantly arguing, there's constant bickering, there's constant backbiting, reporting that one, that one, that one. And as a result, most people are stressed at work and they look forward to the weekend because it gives them time off work. People want to go and leave. They can't wait to get Mother's Day. They can't wait to get the day off. And they hate Monday because it takes them back to the same work environment that they do not like. And it reaches a point where now it's just about salary. You don't want to work. Any opportunity that comes, you want to leave. How have you managed to still stay in these work environments? Because like ZRA, for example, you have stayed there for a very long time. If you're not happy, you would have left, and, but you're still there, you know. How have you managed relationships in the workplace? Um,
1: maybe I'm a believer of making the work environment a very conducive and nice place to be. Um, basically, for me as a leader, it's about building a team that helps you deliver. I think it's the responsibility of every leader to make sure that uh, the environment in the space that they're working in is as conducive as possible. It's about having the emotional intelligence. It's about understanding your staff and knowing your staff. And once you understand them, you will know what excites them, what pisses them off and all that. Then you build a team that will drive towards a common goal, a common goal and once you have a team that drives towards a common goal trust me the work environment becomes exciting you even get to a point where you miss your colleagues at work when you're not in that environment as a result you need to build a team And apart from building a team, we need to get to a point where we also, I think what also makes some environments like that, sometimes we tend to have this ZCCM mentality, that's what I call it, where supervisors, uh, the team leaders, the bosses want to really be bossy over their employees. I think that's not the way to do it. You can still deliver and achieve more by being a great leader and not being a boss. A leader will understand his stuff and he will actually attract people towards his direction and vision. Try to be a leader who inspires, a leader who wants people to be attracted to because you are doing great things, because you are leading by example, you are leading from both the front and behind. Don't be a leader who is unnecessarily pushy at ZCCM, the old ZCCM kind of leadership. That's how I call it, sorry for using that term. But try to be a leader that inspires. Once you inspire your team, you will not have problems in that team. I think personally this is how I feel. Uh, whenever I have a team, for instance, when... Whenever I have a team, I usually call them the national team because I sometimes feel... I don't know whether it's God who's just been gracious with me. I've always felt that I'm always given the best in this country to work with in terms of my teams. If you look at when I was heading PR, for instance, at uh, the authority, I think we had a combination of uh, one great guy, late Mwenya Mlenka, who was PR from UTH. We had uh, Oliver, who had come from ZNBC. So it's like we had gotten the cream de la creme of PR and set up a national team. And that's how I always felt. And it was so easy to work with these guys. It was so exciting. It was fun. And we really had a lot of fun together.
0: You've mentioned um, dealing with the toxic environment top to bottom as a leader. But talk to me about how do we manage that as peers now because all of us now are we're juniors how do i navigate that i'm not in a position to influence to lead or to set direction I, all of us at lateral level we're followers but there's bickering there's what. There's what how do you manage that you know what causes all this for the environment to be toxic
1: it means that either people have not bought into the vision or direction it's either people have no work to do, or it's either there's something frustrating them. Therefore, by nature we are humans, as a result we tend to bring out these things in form of bickering and other things. But the issue is to break all these barriers as peers. Once we break the barriers as peers, have fun days, have all this team building in many ways, I'll tell you this for a fact, Have you seen institutions that will have a back-to-school day, okay, where they ask all employees to wear their school uniform? You know what that does, eh? What that does is that today Sui will come in a short, okay, at the office. And out of fun, we are going to laugh about how funny you look in that uniform, but at the end of the day, it's bringing cohesion and it's actually doing team building the institution. But where the institution is so rigid, okay, to some of these, every person by nature requires playtime. Okay? And we must allow playtime in the work environment. But if we want to be so rigid, that's how that all that tension, the workload and everything, ends up coming out into bickering and other things. But when you allow various activities of team building, understanding where people hang out together. They do some of these simple, silly games. They actually help us break the tension, break the ice, where even if people were not talking to each other in that environment, over time they start talking to each other. They start complimenting each other. Oh, today is uh, maybe uh, Independence Day. All staff are asked to come in traditional attire you will have an opportunity to compliment a friend, to say, oh, your chitenge looks good, your this looks good. At that time, it creates that bond, it creates a family. Then you are able to break the ice and really, instead of bickering and lying about each other, you'll be talking about how nice the chitenge is for a colleague. You get it? You'll be talking about positive things. And it's about the positive vibes and those positive vibes bring great results.
0: Let's now go... um further up in terms of managing relationships with supervisors. Um, you had a supervisor who was basically the Commissioner General, uh, and it's not, not a small, small, small job. That's a very, very senior government position. How do you manage such relationships? Yours was at that level. Others maybe as a supervisor or a manager or what. How do you manage a relationship with your boss? Some people are friendly with their bosses, but then again, you have to draw a line and say, look, yes, we, we, we joke, we may laugh, but this is my boss. How do you manage a relationship with your boss that is cordial, but your avoid British, you know? Yeah, like it's taking it too further.
1: Um, I think again, it takes us back to the issue of emotional intelligence. You it is every employees or subordinate's role to understand the boss, to learn him or her, know what they like, what they don't like. And mostly, in most most cases, once you are a go-getter, you never have problems with your boss. If you are a child's player, you don't deliver your results, trust me, you always have problems with your boss because no boss or no supervisor would tolerate a person who's not able to deliver. Okay? Delivery, 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 you never have problems with any objective leader. And I don't know whether I've been gracious, I don't know whether it's just me who's been special. I've uh, transitioned, I think I've had like six CEOs that I've worked directly under and I've never had a problem with any of them. It's been a smooth ride with all of them. Yes, on one or two occasions we we will uh, basically be on two different notes. He will be pissed or she will be pissed with something, and from there on, you will actually uh, they are just trying to bring you back to book, which is very normal. When you are in a work environment and everything is too rosy throughout, then there's a problem also once in a while it is very normal for you to be on two different pages with your boss or with your subordinate but it must be performance related once you get back to the level they want you to perform you will notice everything
0: goes down and you're back on track okay if i take you back early career what 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 are some mistakes that you made as as a rookie you know getting up the corporate ladder
1: i think one of the mistakes i made but i was quick to learn I think when I first became a manager, it meant that I needed to supervise people. Truth of the matter, I think I've seen myself grow in my career. And uh, then I think I misunderstood the role of a manager or a supervisor. Uh, I think I was a little bit bossy at the beginning. I thought being a manager, you needed to bring out this serious face. You needed to distance yourself from your team, you needed to just give instructions and when things are not done, you don't really need to give room. I think it was a learning curve for me. I think I made my own mistakes and one of the difficult things when I look back, I had a few people who were very mature than me in my team. Okay, And that was more than 10 years ago. I could see that at times when I push for a certain agenda, it wouldn't make sense to them. Probably maybe because I was still learning. And, and thank God they were gracious enough. They would not confront me in a brutal way. But I think I've had uh, people that I've supervised personally who I still respect up to now where you push a certain agenda, they'll allow you to push the agenda in the meeting. After the meeting, they'll come back to you and tell you to say, boss, I think uh, this is what you suggested. And my view is that, yes, you are the boss, but my view is that I think you mishandled this. Why don't, in future, why don't we handle this from this perspective? The way they've presented it to me, I think has helped me grow. And I think as I grew in my career, I understood that being a leader is not about pushing people. It's not about creating a face that you are the boss, but it's about making sure that your team wins. When your team wins, you win. Who gets the accolades at the end of the day when the team delivers? It's the supervisor. So you need to create a conducive environment to make your team win. If I give you all the resources and the tools, once I provide those tools, then you will be able to deliver. If I don't provide the tools, the resource, the motivation in you, then you will not be able to deliver. Then you lose, I lose. So it is the duty of the leader to provide what is missing. Therefore, ensure that if you're a supervisor, provide the tools, provide the motivation, provide the energy, provide everything. They win, you win.
0: You've built relationships away from work. Um, Relationships, obviously, in in the you know, uh, in the PR, uh, relationships also with people who are away from PR, basically a network. And and this is something that most people want to do, because we are now in an environment where for you to get ahead, you need to build a strong network. You need to know people. Um, in Zambia, they quit connections, and they think connections is corruption. And that's why most young people get it wrong, because you haven't built a network. So... You don't have people calling you for opportunities. I said so, no. There's this idea because I feel like yes, it's good to get a degree, you get a master's and whatnot, but the network you have makes it easier for you to get through certain doors. Not because no is corruption and whatnot, but because you know people and they know your capabilities and they understand your strengths and they know. So, so for this, I think Topsy is the guy to do this very well. What mistakes have you seen that most young people make when it comes to relationships, where you know someone? Uh, you make it seem like it's a it's a transactional relationship, favors and whatnot. What mistakes have you seen young people make when it comes to building relationships? Um. Okay, maybe
1: what I've seen it's um I haven't really observed much in terms of what mistakes they make. Maybe I'll just share uh, what I do. Yeah. Then maybe they can look at it from their perspective because I'm not really sure what they do except that I've come across situations where somebody meets you on Facebook, okay? And uh, when they meet you on Facebook, they send you a friend request, you accept the friend request, and they tend to mismanage the opportunity. And I think maybe those are the mistakes I've seen, where they mismanage the opportunity instead of them creating a network, okay, with me to probably... This is somebody who's probably just straight from college we become friends on Facebook. Instead of you using the opportunity to learn, okay, from me and use it wisely, most of them tend to squander it and they want to use it the wrong way. In the sense that they want wrong favors from certain people. And I think that is just uh, one of the biggest mistakes probably I've seen from the young generation. I have, for me, when I create a network with people I look up to, okay. I will not be pestering them. You understand? But I want to learn from them. I want to grow like them. And one simple thing I have, like for me, in terms of network, I have different cycles of friends. I would say I have friends from church. It's a cycle and it's on. I have friends in the entertainment industry. It's a cycle and it's on. Okay? I have friends in the corporate world. It's a cycle and it's on. I have People I look up to in the corporate world it 's a second it's on then i've people I look up to in the business circles it 's a second it's on and these are different circles. One thing i 've learned is to learn i when i 'm learning, I go with something to the table i don 't go bare hands to the table. I uh, will just make mention of this um, my operating model is that each year I want to learn something new. Okay? And I take it quite serious. Sometimes I stretch it from being a one-year thing to a two-year thing or a three-year thing. Okay? In the last I think one or two years, I've been really, I've grown a passion to learn the real estate industry. Okay? And there's a gentleman who's been trying to mentor me in this area, but I didn't go to his place with bare hands, I go with a solution. I'll offer you this, but in the process of offering you this for free, I'll be learning this. So in most cases, people want to come to the table to say, oh, there's Ms. Ngamelu doing fine there. I want her to mentor me. But what are you taking to the table for her to bring you in the inner circle? Okay. I have seen there's uh, Dingani Banda there at uh, Zedwa as Commissioner General. There's Kingsley Chanda, who's a former Commissioner General. There's there are all these role models out there in society that you look up to. If you want to network with them, don't go bare hands. Go with something that you can contribute to the process. What am I saying? What I'm saying is that let me use um. Sorry, I'll use this one because it's an easy example that people will relate to. Huh? Yeah. I'll use, uh, say, Ms. Ngamelu as an example because it's an easy example for people to relate to. Ms. Ngamelu has been working with uh, issues to do with uh, leadership for women, leadership for young girls and all that, okay? You cannot just go to her and say, no, I want to be mentored into leadership by you, no. Ask what events are you having? When is this event? Can I come and just assist in ushering? You understand? So you're bringing something, no matter how small it is, you're bringing something to the table. Not you just want to come and sit there. You will not learn that way. Be part of the process. Once you're part of the process in a small way, then you start rising in that process and learning more in that process. While others will come and just sit there, after the workshop, they will go, or after the talk, they will leave. What the value they will get will not be as much as the value of the person who has come in to help with ushering. Because if you're coming in to help with ushering, you know what's happening? They may have a dress rehearsal for that event a day before. Here with Ms. Ngamero, as an example. On the actual day, when she's presenting, you're still there, you're listening, okay? The date of demobilizing from the venue, you'll still be there. If they're going to sit and review the event, you'll be there. So it means that you have an audience with her for five different times compared to the person who just went to listen to the talk. So try as much as possible if you want to be mentored by anyone or you want to see how little you can contribute to what they are doing and you get the best mentorship that way. Don't go with bare hands. Five to ten years, where do you see yourself? In the next five years, I see there are two issues. But at the end of the day, God draws our destiny. We try and work hard to it. Um, I still feel before I quit the corporate ladder completely, I feel I'm now ripe to go to the apex of the corporate ladder and uh, just um, probably run some organization uh, as CEO. Then from there, I also want to prove a point. You get it, eh? I want to open doors for young artists out there, I think they've been I'll be very honest with you, they've been disrespected in this country. No matter how educated they may be, they are disrespected just because they are artists. Okay? Most artists are disrespected in this country, no matter how educated they are, no matter how much they have achieved. So my thinking is that in trying to break these barriers, it helps us tell the story and it inspires someone out there. My view is go to the apex of the corporate ladder, then quit the corporate ladder and go back to stand-up comedy. If there's one thing I've always wanted to do is law. And trust me, one day I'm going to break this. Hopefully, the lawyers will not have an issue with me. I want to go through it, up to the bar, and go back to the arts and quit it. Because I just want to prove a point. That artists are just as good as... Yes. I've seen colleagues in the League of Fraternity who come from an artistic background. Unfortunately, the bar will not allow you to do both. So I'll quit the bar and go back.
0: God willing. God willing indeed. As we come to the end, three, what are your top five pieces of advice to young people in Zambia?
1: Uh, My top five pieces of advice is patience, number one. I am one person who believes that every day you must live to ensure that you are heading towards your goal. Because goals don't just come by. You understand? People just sit and wish that one day they'll be CEO. It doesn't work like that. You need to work towards it every day. It's building blocks, block by block, block by block. If you're lucky, you may have two blocks up, if you're lucky. But it, does, it doesn't come just like that. It's about hard work. And hard work with focus, with direction. Therefore, even if you're jobless today, What is your vision? Where do you see yourself in the next few years? How do I work towards that? You understand? If I have a dream of probably becoming an accountant, okay, yes, the resources may not be there for you to study accounting now. But what are you doing for you to start working towards becoming an accountant? The building blocks, step by step, step by step. So you may want to start with something small, probably start working at a car wash so that it's a block to raising money to go to school. Then once you raise the money, you go to school. So it's block by block. Sometimes it may take long, sometimes it may take short, uh, shorter periods. What is key and what is important is to ensure that you don't lose sight of the ball. Eyes on the ball and step by step it's a building block. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Alright, so that ends our conversation with Mr. Skalinda Topsy. Um, he... He's an artist, he is a serious corporate person, soon to be lawyer, and then quit law and then you know follow the ads um, altogether. Thank you very much for the conversation, Topsy. And I think we've seen you in a whole new light. Eh? Thank you. I feel like we know you better now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Join us in our next video. Don't forget to like, uh, leave a comment, and also share, recommend the conversation to a friend. You never know who benefits from a conversation of this nature. Thank you so much.